Welcome to Radio 5G, where we sort fact from fiction, conspiracy from falsehood, reality from the unknown. And by doing so, we change the collective consciousness of humanity. A production of CosmicReality.com Welcome to Radio 5G. This is a pre-recording that will air on the 12th of July, 2023. My name is Nancy Hopkins. Uh, This is Cosmic Reality Radio. And the Radio 5G show today is a segment, episode, whatever, is other people. And in this segment, episode or whatever, we put up other people's thoughts on the current reality. Today, we're going to start out with Tucker Carlson, and this is his first interview since he was let go by Fox, fired, and he's, he's, being, he's talking to Russell uh, Brandt, who is a comedian, he was very liberal, then he got red-pilled, and boom, he woke up. It is a very good overview of what Carlson is thinking now and um, a discussion of a number of different subjects that if Carl, if Tucker Carlson is telling you something, sometimes he's been wrong, but he admits it. But what he's telling you in this, I can tell you from my own knowledge that he's uh, he's been red-pilled, he's way down the rabbit hole, but it is just nice to hear him update his life. And I think you'll uh, find it informative and fun because, well, Russell Brand is on interviewing him. That's going to be like the first hour. Then the second hour, we're going to do something even farther away from the concept of 5G dangers and electromagnetic dangers and that sort of thing. Because we're going to be talking about background people. Now, if you don't know what background people are, then you're going to find this really kind of mind-bending. If you've been hearing it talked about or mentioned, it'll give you clarity on what people are thinking about this subject. And I'm not going to get into any more than that because it's fairly well explained. So, I thank you for being here. We will see you through the show. I'm going to introduce each of the segments so you kind of know what's about to happen. And uh, I just appreciate you all. Here we go then. And the first one is Tucker Carlson and Russell Brand. And this is just, you know, from a few days ago. I mean, a week ago or something. It's, it's very recent. And it's his first, Tucker's first interview since leaving Fox. Hello there, you Awakening Wonders. Thanks for joining me on Stay Free with Russell Brand. At the moment, we're on YouTube, but that will only be for the first 15 minutes before we are exclusively on the home of free speech, Rumble. And, of course, our free speech is the free speech to unify in the spirit of love, not free speech to speak hatefully of one another. Of course, the reason we're so excited today is because we are being joined for a world-exclusive We have Tucker Carlson with us in studio, his first interview since leaving Fox News. Thanks for joining us, Tucker Carlson. (laughs) As as your friend, 
And as someone who watches a lot of your videos, I'm I'm amazed that I'm here. This is prettier even. I'm not going to give away critical details and uh, jeopardize your safety, but this is, if people could see where you're broadcasting from. You think it's a beautiful... I think it's beautiful. And that's not an overstatement. I think it's beautiful. Thank you so much, because I think we have a beautiful intention here. We're recognizing that independent media and independent politics are beginning to coalesce. It's becoming increasingly unlikely that you can report truthfully, honestly, and in good faith putting forward anti-establishment narratives without being attacked. Of course, we're going to talk about a lot of subjects here, but and primarily we we're going to want to talk about the reasons for you leaving Fox. We're going to want to talk about some of the reporting around Jan 6. We're going to want to talk about the attacks that you endured in your defense of the text messages around Trump. First of all, I want to start off by asking you, Tucker, how has it been in the six, month, six months or so since you left Fox? How have you been personally, and how does it compare to the time when you left MSNBC in terms of its emotional impact on you? Well, I've been fired. You know, it's not the first time I've been fired. And I think in our business, when you work for a big company in media and, you know, you say what you think, there's an expectation that you could get fired. So um, I've always had that. And I've always tried to take the long view, not just on media, but on life. Mm. All graves go and visit it in the end. I always think that. And uh, so I, I, I was I was surprised. I didn't, you know, expect to get fired that morning at all in uh, April. Um, so I was shocked, but I wasn't really shocked and I wasn't mad. It's not my company. And when you work for someone else, that person reserves the right. And in fact, has inherently the right to decide whether you work there or not. And, um, I don't know why I was fired. I really don't. Uh, I'm not angry about it. Uh, you can believe me or not, but I think you can feel that I'm not. Um, and you know, I wish Fox well. Uh, there was, you know, ugly leaking, you know, I'm a racist or whatever they leaked or someone there leaked to the New York times, but I, that's not true. And I think the people who run the company know that's not true. I actually don't think they did it. Um, and I'm not mad about it. And I've been, I've been happy. I guess the only thing that bothers me is I'm 54 and when you get a little bit older, and my wife and I, you know, our children are grown and we live in rural settings, as you do, because mm. we believe in nature and God and dogs, uh, you know, you can lose your your drive. I mean, it's just a little bit too nice, kind of. And I do feel like we, you know, people who are healthy and aware and who can read, like have an obligation to be engaged in the life of the community they live in and the life of the country they live in and in the life of the world to the extent that they can. Mm -hmm. And so my only fear um, has been maybe being a little bit too happy. You know, I've spent a lot of time trout fishing, a lot of time. We have four dogs, a lot of time with my dogs and my wife and a lot of kind of like late breakfast outside and stuff, and, you know, like, you don't, that's not, I mean, that's great, but life is, has got to be more than that. So now I'm back to work, and I'm grateful to be to be doing that. The fact that you're broadcasting now on Twitter suggests that you still want to remain engaged in the international conversation, which is a conversation about ethics. It's a conversation yes. about power. If you're watching us on Rumble right now, remember to press the red button if you want to join us on Locals. That's where I watch the conversation. I can see Sensitive Hearts, Ashella, all of our beautiful, unified, diverse community that speak openly and freely there. Please do join us because uh, at the end of this conversation, Tucker's going to join us for an additional chat. True or false? 
with Tucker. In a sense, the whole conversation is true or false. I mean, what's the point in having a conversation if I there agree. isn't some line between authenticity and falsehood? You touched briefly for a moment on the idea of racism. And of course, this is a, an idea that's talked about a lot or an accusation, really, that's been offered. When I went on your show in America, mate, which I, I, I enormously enjoyed and the, the personal connection with you that we, we have uh, since cultivated is the thing that I perhaps most enjoyed. I spoke to some of my friends that are overtly liberal, even though many of them are beginning to recognise that the categories of left and right are shifting. What they said is that Tucker Carlson, when he talks about demographic shifts in the United States of America, how the balance between uh, different ethnicities is shifting over time, that that is codified racism. And some of them, like some of my mates that are LA uh, Democrats, like, you know, me, I don't believe in any political party anymore right. in, oh, in this country. Tell or me about country. it. Yeah, no, I agree. But, like, but I do still feel that some of the principles that are more typically associated with the left, like um, recognising that all voices have a value in the conversation and that, and that essentially that racism is bad. <laughs> so how do you feel about that? And what are you talking about when you say there's a demographic shift you know, what does what I do you mean say a couple things first um I, I always try i'm over 50 so like why wouldn't i just say exactly what i think at all times and i do and so if i had ra well whatever my racial views are i would just say them and i'm just saying them now so my views about race begin with my religious faith, which is not very sophisticated, but is sincere. Yeah. And that begins with the belief, the knowledge, the certainty that God created people, that they're not objects, they're not machines, they're not widgets in a bin waiting to be assembled by some company. They are distinct individuals with distinct souls, and they have equal value in the eyes of God. Doesn't mean they have equal ability. Doesn't mean they have, they all look the same. But it means they have equal inherent value. And my politics flow from that belief. Yes. And so the idea that you would reduce people to their race and say, you know, we're going to treat this person better or worse because of his skin color is repugnant to me. And it's something that I've argued against every day that I was at Fox News. I think all of my life, you can't punish or reward people based on their immutable characteristics. Yes. Because they didn't choose those characteristics. So it's inherently unfair. It's inherently immoral. I'm totally opposed to it. And so if that's a racist position, I guess, you know, I'll just stand and, and take the punishment. I don't think that is. I think that's an argument against racism. I think it's wrong to reduce people to qualities they were born with and they can't control. Period. Yes. My views in immigration are super simple and I think mainstream and sensible. The fact of who lives in a country more than any other fact determines what the country is like. And so if you change it radically over a very short period of time, you're going to have a lot of social upheaval, a lot of churn. It's going to rattle people. People can't metabolize change very well at all the industrial revolution led to stalinism and then the third reich like th these are basic facts it's not an attack on anyone's color at all and i'm you know whatever uh so but i would say, so those are my views i support a lot of well i don't i don't know how i feel about immigration as a topic 
there are a lot of immigrants I love, including my best friend, for whatever it's worth. Um, so I'm not, of course, I'm not against immigrants. Like, that's insane. Uh, but the way that the United States is doing immigration is designed to wreck the country and to make it unstable and to destroy any social cohesion whatsoever, or social trust, to make people hate each other and add to racial, yes, racial division, which I hate because it's not solvable. Um, in contrast to, say, class division, if we're arguing about class, well, at least class theoretically can change. I can ascend or descend classes, but race doesn't change because we didn't, we're not responsible for it. We're created that way. So you don't want racial conflict. That's the one thing you don't want. And I feel that in the United States, our leaders not only want racial conflict, but are stoking it. Um, but as a practical matter, in the, just, just in the context of U.S. politics, and perhaps it's similar in the U.K., the term racist or white supremacist or white nationalist, these aren't, I mean, these are terms designed to stop people from talking. Um, I remember the first time I was called a white supremacist. I mean, for whatever it's worth, I don't want to sound defensive, but I grew up in Southern California in the 70s. Uh, living with a father who was, by in modern terms, very racially progressive or something. And he was always saying, God created people. Like, it didn't, racism didn't even make sense to me. That was not a factor in my life at all. Um, and we lived right next to Mexico, whatever. So, but the first time I was called a white supremacist, I was like, geez, that's, it hurt. It stung. And I thought, I'm not exactly sure what that is. But I know that I'm not one, but I know that that's like the worst thing you can be. That's like calling someone a Nazi like, or a monster or Satan or like, what is that? And I was, I was bothered by it. It was right when I started my last Fox show. So it was in the fall of 2016. And I did a kind of long, very sincere, I mean it too, sincere script about how, you know, this is what we, I believe and we're all created by God and you should never punish or reward people based on their skin color. And it had no effect at all. And then I realized the people using those terms are not sincere at all. There's no sincerity. The words have no meaning to them, except as they're useful as tools to acquire political power and to make anyone who stands in the way of that shut up or go away or go to prison. And so once I realized they weren't sincere, then I, it's like, that's between me and God. And not only am I not a racist, I'm not much of a hater. Yeah. I really try not to be. And there are things that I hate and there are people I feel like I'm on the verge of hating sometimes or I feel myself obsessing. You know, you're like in the in the truck or you're, you know, walking the dogs and you're pissed about something. And I can't believe that fucking person, you know, whatever. And I really try and catch myself and say to myself, don't that will eat you if you let it fester like that. Don't be that way. I'm not I'm a very flawed person, but I really try not to be a hater because I, I think that's death. I mean it, too. One of the areas of your answer there that I imagine we could talk about further are the distinctions between having a position on immigration and its potential ability to destabilize an indigenous population, how you, again, cross-reference that with colonial and imperial history, how you cross-reference that with globalism and an attempt to create sort of like a centralist authoritarian model. Um, that, 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 you know, that's something we could talk about a lot, a lot longer, I'm sure, the distinction between racism and having a position on immigration. <laughs> also, You get in the way of their business plan and they call you a racist. That's what's actually happening here. And perhaps I wonder, <laughs> I, I wonder too, Tucker, in, indeed, about the, these new categories of misinformation, malinformation, and disinformation, how new ways of censoring and shutting down conversation yeah. are 
uh, beginning to appear. I reckon we should come off YouTube now. If you're watching us on YouTube, the next question I'm going to ask you, uh, Tucker, there's a viewer question. Uh, what, this is from at the boss. This is on Locals. If you want to watch us on Locals, press the red button and join our Locals community. This is how we aim to have conversations like this all the time because my belief is actually an optimistic and hopeful one of humanity that we share more with one another than divides us and that there are ways of reorganizing society radically and that our categories and our lexicon has to alter significantly because left and right are starting to become redundant when there are so many similarities between the left and right when both appear to be driving towards centralist authoritarian models where you are surveilled and censored at will where free conversation is closed down on the basis that there is some other authority that knows better than you what you mean when you're speaking and that they have the right to shut you down press that red button and join us over on local so you can ask questions to tucker i'm assuming that your questions for tucker although a bloody are answer any question that you throw my way let me tell you the boss says what is your relationship with trump like now but before tucker tells us what his relationship with donald trump is like right now having said once like you know those text messages remember that stuff and then publicly saying that donald trump is significant plus we've got to talk about rfk plus we've got to talk about censorship plus we've got to talk about the military industrial complex plus we've got to talk about the hunter biden laptop and plus we've got to talk about big pharma and in order to do that we have to have free speech that's why you got to click on the link in the description join us over on rumble right now and if you're with us on Rumble, bye bye youtube we love you you 6.4 million awakening wonders if you're watching us on rumble press the red button and join us on locals and post your questions there there's so, so much to ask you i'm so I, i'm so grateful to you for coming this. here do you like you it you're it? happy i love it have you got everything you need can i offer you I've any more my, snacks nicotine i've gum? got my nicotine i've got my pellegrino i had my coffee i'm, I'm in my happy place i'm so glad that yeah, i'm so glad that you're comfortable here thank you so much it means a lot that you've given us uh, this interview thank you very much tucker um mate so uh like i suppose what we're asking there is that it seems that you said that trump was no longer relevant in the political conversation he was no longer the lightning rod he was no longer the berserker of american politics loads of people on our platform absolutely love donald trump trump they see him as the solution to america's problems they see him as the great swamp drainer it seems you have occupied varying positions on trump at various times um, where are you on Donald Trump now? And particularly perhaps how that relates to the emergence of radical anti-establishment figures within the Democrat Party, notably RFK. Uh, where am I on Trump now? Well, I love Trump, um, personally. I mean, I made a huge mistake last November in getting involved in American politics, something I've never done before. And making calls, you know, this guy's going to win. I think this is going to happen in this state. Meet your new governor, New York, stuff like that. And I was wrong on almost every call. I'm not a very astute political analyst. I'm not interested in politics. I never have been interested in politics. I'm interested in ideas. I'm interested in people. Um, And so there's a primary going on in the United States between Trump and a bunch of other people, primarily uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, but others, Vivek Ramaswamy, for example. And Mm. I haven't said word one about it. Don't plan to. Um, I, you know, I think looking back on this 10 years from now, assuming we're still around, uh, I think we're going to see Trump's emergence as as the most significant thing to happen in American politics in 100 years because he reoriented the Republican Party um, against the wishes of Republican leaders. Uh, but when I think about Trump right now, so it's July of 2023, 
you know, I'm struck by his foreign policy views. You know, Trump is the only person um, with stature in the Republican Party, really, who's saying, wait a second, you know, why are we supporting an endless war in Ukraine? And that, you know, leaving aside whether Trump's going to get the nomination or get elected president or would be a good president, you know, I can't even assess that. All I can say at this point is I'm so grateful that he has that position. He's right. And everyone in Washington's wrong. Everyone. Mm-hmm. And Trump is right on that question. And it's a big question. That war is reshaping the world. It's reshaping the economy of the world. It's reshaping populations. The ref- I mean, I was just in Romania last week, you know, which is, of course, shares a border with Ukraine. The, the refugees in that region, the number of people killed in that war, I mean, Europe will never be the same because of this war. And it really matters. And Trump alone among popular figures in both parties understands that. And I'm grateful for it. Whether he gets the nomination or gets elected, you know, words really matter. Saying something true out loud matters. And he is saying true things about Ukraine and God bless him. That's how I feel. So Trump generated, I suppose, a new type of populism. He rebooted politics. He reordered the Republican Party. And uh, but perhaps is it fair to say that uh, other than the significant fact that he, he was less militaristic significantly than other pre- yes. comparable uh, presidents, at least recent presidents, I mean by that, uh, do you think that he delivered in office? Uh, why do you think he remains so fascinating? Do you think that the, the Americans, broadly speaking, that are attracted to Donald Trump are attracted by his foreign policy stance, or do you no. think that there's something else? And um, do you not think that RFK, who is, is my understanding, he's been on the show a couple of times, he's now on Rumble, and I, I find him to be a very admirable man. He similarly is uh, vehemently anti-war, anti this conflict, and seems to also have identified the uh, unspoken intention to be the deracination and annihilation of Russia for globalist and economic reasons, yes. rather than a, the, the rather naive assumption that it's in any way a humanitarian conflict. Well, it's for democracy <laughs> that's my favorite it's for democracy okay say the people who hate democracy um well i i love bobby kennedy and uh, i've had him on my show many times he announced for president on my show which took a lot of stones on his part mm. given how despised i am by a lot of democratic primary voters uh, i think he's a i think he's a wonderful person i'll say that just as a man i admire him um i admire i mean he said the the greatest thing any any politician or any public figures ever said to me at dinner a couple of years ago, you know, they've gone after his family. The pharma companies and, and their agents in the media have really gone after his family, his siblings. They convinced a bunch of his siblings to denounce his views. So painful. And I'm so close to my family. I can't even imagine that. And I said to him, um, what's that like? like? I thought I took a lot of shit. I can't even imagine what that would be like. If, if my brother denounced me, I'd shoot myself. I couldn't handle it. Also, if it was Buck, he would be able to provide the weapon. <laughs> he would. Yeah. Well, yeah. My brother's not going to denounce me. Uh, it's my best friend and wonderful man. But anyway, so I said to him, what's that like? And he said, and I'm quoting, I probably shouldn't be quoting a private conversation, but he said this to me. He said, I've got seven children and they all love me. I don't care. Wow. And I thought, though, okay, you want us to distill my values into a sentence? That's the sentence. So I I really admire him. I don't agree with him on everything. I do agree with him. I'll just be honest on most things on the big things. Yeah. Um, And so, no, I I love what he's doing. I love his bravery, uh, which is just remarkable. The amount that man has suffered for what he thinks is true. The amount of money he's lost, the friends he's lost. He's been ostracized in a way most people can't even understand because he ticked off a drug company. 
really? Uh, and he's persevered, and I, he is, I really admire him. If RFK and Trump ca have risen, as they plainly have, to capture the popular imagination, and yet both to a degree are stymied, shackled, or reluctantly tolerated by their party, what does that tell us about the shifting sands <laughs> of American political life? I think the area where you and I most plainly and overtly align, perhaps other than the belief in God, I suppose, is our... Deep understanding that the military industrial complex and big pharma are able to exert significant power over the Democratic Party, a uh, democratic process that renders ordinary electoral politics basically meaningless. Yes. These two figures are like populist anti establishment figures in a sense. What do you feel is the likelihood of either of them being able to pass through the internal mechanics of their parties, you know, in the case of uh, RFK, through the, the legal hurdles that are being placed in front of Trump at the moment? And what is the role of independent media, in particular, say, a figure like Elon Musk, who seems, at the yes. moment at least, to have the power to fight? on that terrain? I know there was a lot in that question, Tucker, but you've got Well, I would say, say a couple things. One, the United States has had precisely in 250 years almost one populist president, and that was Teddy Roosevelt, the most, also the most popular president in American history, who was president from 1901, president was, who he served as VP was, was shot to death, uh, until 1908. Most popular president the United States ever had, and he was a populist. The two biggest populist figures in the moment are Trump and Bobby Jr. And then we had a guy called Ross Perot run about 30 years ago who roughly had the same politics. All four of those figures had one thing in common. They were all from the world they criticized. Mm. So you think of populously, you know, the, the English peasant revolt, yes. which is one of the most interesting things ever to happen, where they, st they stormed the Tower of London and killed, I think they killed... The Archbishop. I'm from there. That's right. died in Essex. Yes. What, what Tyler? Yeah, what Tyler? Exactly. We're not even sure if that was his real name. And Jack what Tyler? What Tyler? <laughs> and uh, but he was a legit peasant. Like we don't even know when he was born. And that was not an effective rebellion. Of course, they did not free the serfs after that, as I recall. But the effective populists are the ones who critique from the inside and say, mm -hmm. "I grew up in this world." Teddy Roosevelt grew up rich, of course, in New York. Trump, pro. Bobby, I mean, Bobby Kennedy's family is the most faint, one of the most famous families in the world in modern history, the Kennedys, and certainly the most famous family in democratic politics. So these are people who know how the system works because they've benefited from the system. And so their critique is much more meaningful and much more effective, I would say, because they can bear witness to what they have seen. Um, I don't think Trump has changed politics in Washington. I think the parties both have been very resistant to any kind of reform. And that's very foolish. That's a Ceausescu move. You see things changing around you and you just you can't metabolize it. You can't sort of change with the moment. And then you you know, you meet a bad end when you become that rigid. Um, I, I think that Bobby Kennedy and Trump will both have a very tough time getting the nomination. I'm hoping that both of them will, of course, I guess. Uh, I'm hoping that their message will be heard. I don't know. I don't even know what I hope for in the process itself, but I want them to be heard. And they can now be heard because there are channels of information that people can tune into and listen. I mean, I would just, I would just, I would amend one thing you said when you said that, you know, these huge multinationals control our politics. Well, they also control our media. Yeah. They do. 
I mean, pharma, as you well know and often say on your show, is the biggest advertiser on American television. Probably true in the UK as well. And so, you know, there's no incentive whatsoever to question their products. And now we have, because of the social media companies, Twitter and Rumble and probably others, we have less filtered sources of information with fewer gatekeepers and a, and a higher probability you'll hear something true. I think that's a huge change. I mean, how can you... I mean, this is like Samus Dot. This is like, you know, this is like information that the people in charge don't want you to see. And now you can see it. It really is the promise of the Internet finally fulfilled. That's my hope anyway. Figures like RFK and Trump already demonstrably through his successful use of Twitter are going to require new models of media in order to build an audience, whether or not you align with the views of those individuals. It's, it's, uh, it's plain to see that uh, the traditional media models uh, curtail uh, and censor their rhetoric. Why, when you left Fox News, I think like those of us that work in the independent media space all thought, oh, like Tucker's leaving. Like, an I even, if I may say, like when we met, I was like, oh, he's going to leave Fox. Like, I yeah. like I felt like just from the just because of your awareness <laughs> and because the stuff you were saying about the mainstream, the fact you're having Glenn Greenwald on there and people yeah, every saw... week <laughs> <laughs> from his bunker in Rio. I yeah. love I love Glenn. Yeah, he's what a beautiful a good human being. Yes, he's right. he's a, no doubt a brilliant man. So we but we were all. Amongst us, thinking, where will Tucker go? Is it going to be Tucker? Is it, will he be joining us on Rumble? Will you like? Will you set up your own thing? What was it about uh, your conversations with Elon Musk that led you to work there on Twitter? Well, I don't work for Elon. Um, he's paid me zero money. Um, I don't think I ever want to work for anyone again. I've mm. done that. Um, I'd like to make money. I mean, I've, you know, I think that's fair. I've made zero money uh, since I left. Um, and that's fine. But at some point I'd like to, but I'm not working for Elon Musk. He hasn't offered to hire me. And if he did, I wouldn't accept. Um, but what he's done is offered me the what he's offered every other user of Twitter, which is a, you know, a chance to broadcast your views without a gatekeeper there. Um, but I do think, you know, I think the technology at Twitter is my expectation uh, is evolving. And I think, you know, the subscription model you know, might work or it might not, you know, mm. I, I don't know, but I think it might. And, um, and I plan to, I plan to stay there, but what social media offer in the short term, at least for me, uh, is an audience, but also a reason, this is personal, but a reason to write. I can't think clearly without writing. You know, I started in this business as a magazine writer and a book writer, newspaper writer, and I need to write things out. I'm very dyslexic and I can't, you know, I have trouble processing information in certain ways. And, Unless I'm forced to write a script, I can't really decide what I think about something. And so the daily or regular discipline of writing a script forces me. And in some cases, it really is forced. I don't want to do it. I'd much rather go fishing or bird hunting. You know, I would. But if I have to, I will. And there's something wonderful in that. You know, writing a script, as you know, forces you to think through everything about the issue to have a much deeper understanding of it. at least for me that's true so um i couldn't go too long without writing or my iq would drop dramatically i don't think i'd ever recover we had stephen friend on here and the other fbi whistleblower and uh like uh and importantly and perhaps this is the most important thing about that story one of their brothers and sisters has tattooed stick figures of me on their genitals that's the defining how issue. is that how has that affected his dating life it's ruined it. 
Well, I mean, I think it would kind of narrow the available population down a little significantly. bit. Significantly. <laughs> it's just me now. I'm the only person who sees that as an advantage. Oh, well, I am honoured. Do as you will. Um, but also, uh, on the, they said, of course, these FBI whistleblowers, that the FBI had a significant number of agents, that there were other law enforcement agencies there on January the 6th. In fact, it was the whistleblowing on this subject of that course. caused them all this grief. They, in a sense, uh, the, there are some discrepancies, shall we say, on how that event was initially reported on uh, 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 with regards to what actually went down. Now, what you've been accused of in the mainstream after you received, I think it was like 40,000 hours of footage from your man McCarthy there, was that you uh, sort of cherry-picked, is the phrase that often comes up, footage to deliberately show that it was, uh, to, to a degree, a peaceful event. What is your sincere opinion of what went on on January the 6th? And wh why do you feel that there is um, a, yet an attempt to regard it as a deliberate uh, insurrection? And... Uh, and also within that, I guess the, the possibility for presenting moments of peace within 40,000 right. hours of footage does exist. So were you sincere in your presentation or do you have a particular perspective on how I you was, wanted that event I, to be seen? I have, well, let me just say, one of my children was there working in the building and called me during it um, and was right nearby when Ashley Babbitt was shot. Um, so I was interested in it from the moment it happened. I was appalled by the vandalism outside by fighting with police officers. I hate violence from abortion to the war in Ukraine. I mean, I am consistent on that. I'm not a Catholic, but I, I share those. I definitely share those views. I'm not for the death penalty, I'm not for killing people. I'm not for hurting people. I'm not for violence. And I, and I, I've had those views for a long time. So, um, you know, any violence on January 6th, I oppose. I've said that many times. I would, was kind of happy to leave it where it was, which is this got completely out of hand. The only reason I ever got involved in commenting on it was, I mean, we did a show that night saying, well, this is awful, right? What happened was the lying about it was immediate. This was a racist white supremacist insurrection. Well, okay. There was no indication to this day that race had anything to do with it at all. Like nothing. These are people who thought the election was stolen from them. There's some evidence they were right. We could debate that. But that's what they thought. That's a meaningful thing. If you've got a big population in your country that doesn't believe that your elections are on the level, you need to figure out a way to convince them that the elections are on the level or else you can't have democracy because yeah. it's a faith-based system. So that was the first thing I noticed. There was no effort at all to convince people, actually, electronic voting machines are secure, which they are not. By the way, that's a lie. In any country that has electronic voting machines is by definition at risk of having its election stolen. By definition. No country that cared about democracy would have electronic voting machines, okay? First thing. But no one even, and by the way, many Democrats have made that point. Not now, but mm -hmm. 10 years ago. There was no effort to reassure anybody. They immediately used it as a cudgel to make their political opponents shut up and in a lot of cases to send them to jail. So I noticed this. And I'm like, well, wait a second. Nobody here is operating in good faith at all. They're just immediately lying with maximum aggression. And anyone who asks questions about it, like me, and if you could go back and look at the tape, my first five shows on January 6th were like, well, yeah, it's bad, but I don't think you're telling the truth about what actually happened. Shut up, <laughs> racist. <laughs> what? <laughs> so that's always the key for me. If it's like an infection, you know it's infected when it hurts. You press it, ah, you recoil. They immediately recoiled when you asked any questions about January 6th. And that was a tip off to me. I mean, I had no 
thought in my head as I watched this happen on television and in the subsequent weeks that U.S. law enforcement or military agencies had anything to do with it. That never crossed my mind. I never thought there was it was a false flag or anything like that. I'm not a conspiracist by temperament. I never thought that. Um, and then I interviewed the chief of the Capitol Police, Stephen Sund, in an interview that was never aired on Fox, by the way. I was fired before it could air. Um, I, I'm going to interview him again. But Stephen Sund was the totally non-political, worked for Nancy Pelosi. I mean, this was not some right-wing activist. He was the chief of the Capitol Police on January 6th. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That crowd was filled with federal agents. What? Yes. Well, he would know, of course, because he was in charge of security at the site. So the more time has passed, now it's been two and a half years, it becomes really obvious that core claims they made about January 6th were lies. And my view about events and about people is if you catch someone telling a lie about one thing, the first question you have is what else are you lying about? If you say to your wife, where were you? I was at the grocery store. If you find out she was not at the grocery store, then it raises, okay, Probably not just lying about being at the grocery store, were you? Like, what is this exactly? Why were you lying about that? And that's kind of the way I feel about January. Like, what is this? What this is? They're clearly lying. That's provable. Why? Um, and, you know, I'm the last person. I'm often accused of being a conspiracy. Not I'm the opposite. I grew up in a very stable country, the United States, in the 70s and 80s, where people didn't indulge in conspiracies because there weren't any obvious ones afoot, right? I mean, we took things at face value. We trusted our government by and large. Um, but I, the amount of lying around January 6th, and it was obvious in the tapes that I showed, um, is really distressing. And anyone who's covering for those lies should be ashamed of himself. And that would include almost the entire American media, including Fox News. Um, People at Fox News, Fox News, to its great credit, let me air that. And I'm grateful that they did. But there, you know, there are people there who were mad at me for airing that. Really? Why? If, if you think I'm cherry picking it and taking it out of context, show me show me where. Uh, and by the way, I didn't make the claim that it was entirely peaceful. It, it wasn't. Police officers were injured. More police officers were injured at the riots in front of the White House the year before. But whatever. All injuries to police officers or anyone else are bad. I'm not certainly not making excuses for it. But I'm asking obvious questions. You said this happened. For example, there was a guy called the QAnon shaman, Jacob Chansley. They put the guy in prison for years. There is surveillance tape that they hid until I aired it, showing the Capitol Police trying lots of doors, trying to get into the Senate chamber, the sacrosanct chamber that he wasn't allowed to be in, and then escorting him in. And he kind of wanders around like he's taking a hit of mescaline, just kind of, you know what I mean? And like he says a prayer, he thanks God for the Capitol Police, and then he wanders out. Now, there are a lot of conclusions you could draw from that, but you cannot call that guy an insurrectionist. That's a lie. And by the way, an insurrection is a very specific meaning, and I'm pedantic about words because they're the currency that I trade in. I mean, that's what I do. I use words for a living, so I care about their specific meanings. That was not an insurrection. It was not armed, and its purpose was not to overthrow the government. It was... It was a spasm of rage that Trump definitely it helped inspire. That's true. And um, at the election results. Okay. You know, I, I'm not actually for that. I don't think leaders should be making people more pissed in general. Um, but that's what it was. It was not an insurrection. And to put Jacob Chansley, an American citizen, a Navy veteran, in jail for years after he was let into the Senate chamber 
by uniformed Capitol Hill police officers, and then I play that, and I'm the bad guy? Fuck you. Like, what What do you make of that? I'm sorry, it makes me mad just thinking about it. I said I wasn't going to be a hater. That makes me mad. And I see people on other channels, it's outrageous. He's trying to minimize January 6th. Well, but what? this guy went to prison. Went to prison. You ever been to prison? You, Only for visits. Right, okay. It's not very nice. You don't want to go to, to prison clarify. to take a man's freedom away and call him all these names for something he didn't do and then show no remorse at all when you are exposed to have lied about it. This is a human being who was locked away in a prison. It's an outrage to me. Tucker. Like, <laughs> do you mind? Do you mind if I spoke? Sorry, 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 sorry. Well, it's very hard to get in this position. <laughs> <laughs> right? See that Iraq war, like, you know, that was brilliant when you went on that podcast and went, like, that you're ashamed that you participated yes. and that you rallied for that war. Now to hear you talk about Jan 6, you're saying, like, uh, that sort of at the beginning you had no axe to grind and broadly speaking you oppose violence of any kind. And I you do. Oppose violence. Yeah, I know, I believe you. And you oppose violence against the police, perhaps in particular now though it seems that you are um inquiring if not suggesting that there is another that there was another aim are you saying that it was allowed uh, the capital police to be funded differently and more exp- extensively are you saying that it uh, facilitated further authoritarianism that it uh, enabled people to smear the maga movement uh, that it created more opportunity for surveillance laws and censorship one of the sort of um techniques or critiques that we use here on our channel when looking at news is oh does this allow people to censor more does this allow people to surveil more does this allow for example like a sort of just to use a sort of something anecdotal and contemporaneous that there's a just stop oil movement in this country at the moment and whenever you see footage of them sort of blocking roads and sort of road users dragging them out of the road because it's annoying like you like and i say this is a person who sort of loves nature loves the environment feels that profit shouldn't be put ahead of respect and love for the environment i can't help but feel that the media has an agenda in pres- continually presenting us with these annoying images of Just Stop Oil getting in the way of ordinary commuters who are just trying to get to work. And I'm beginning to now critique media from that perspective. Oh, they are using this event in order to elicit these emotions, whether it's war or the events of January 6th. Do you believe that there is, a, as George Carlin would say, a convergence of interest between the state and its desire to regulate and corporations and their desire to profit, big tech and their desire to capture data, the state and their need to get data what is it you're observing because when when i'm listening to you you don't sound like a you know like a regular tv anchor anymore and in fact one of the things i'm offering is that that's not a role that's going to exist for much longer because the, the centralization of authority is becoming so rapid and so radical that if you even work in this space you know with these new e-law, eu laws being passed that will mean that social media platforms will be heavily fined six percent of their annual revenue and that they can be censored the five eyes countries all passing censorship laws in a sense to become an independent media voice will be to become an activist so with regard to the january 6th do you do you think these events are used to create particular outcomes do you think it's just opportunistic and um, where do you feel the result your personal role is as an independent media broadcaster is now well i think my role is to tell the truth to the extent i can see it you know to say what i think is true Always with the knowledge that we see everything, you know, through a glass darkly. We don't see things clearly. We don't have perspective on ourselves, the world around us. We get a lot wrong. I've gotten a lot wrong, that's for sure. Um, But you do your best. And you cannot allow people to force you to lie, period. So that's how I see my role. 
um, I think you're asking the right question. And I asked the same thing about the climate movement. I mean, I'm bewildered by it. Now, apart from my own family, there's nothing more important to me than nature. I think I spend an above average time in nature amount of time. I mean, I've organized my whole life to be in nature. Um, so I really, really care about it. And I'm very upset about the many ways in which it's despoiled, at least in my country. I mean, nature's not doing well. The environmental movement is gone where I live. And we pollute, we put up chain stores and strip malls and pave things we should not pave. We, we are very tough on nature in the United States. And the environmental movement does nothing to stop that. And so my question for the climate people, and I have no doubt the climate is changing. It's always changed. I live in a place that was completely sculpted by the glaciers, which only melted 10,000 years ago. There were people, there were people living where I live in northwestern Maine when the glaciers receded 10,000, the Native Americans 10,000 years ago. So like this is a feature of, of life on Earth. Um, but and so I have no doubt it's changing again. And, and I would be completely open to the possibility that people's behavior is accelerating that change or driving it to some extent. It doesn't sound crazy to me. I don't think it's proven, but I'm open to it. Of course I am. My question is really simple. Which of your solutions to climate change disempower you? Mm. So when you act your father on behalf of your children, you are doing things because you love them. They're not necessarily in your interest. Like you'd rather go take a sauna or do some yoga or hop on your wife. But no. You have a child with needs, so you love that child, so you do something for that child. That's what it looks like to serve and love someone, is to do something you don't want to do, doesn't help you in any way, but at least potentially helps that other person. I see the climate movement not doing one thing that doesn't enrich or empower the climate movement and its corporate sponsors. Not one. So, for example, not to be (laughs) boorish here in lecture, but I'll I'll stop with this. Like, if I understand, you know, the, the... the ecology correctly, trees are like helpful if you're worried about rising CO2, correct? Because they consume it and then emit what oxygen. So if you're really worried about climate change caused by carbon dioxide, you'd probably be planting a lot of trees. I don't see a ton of, and I would be very for that as someone who truly loves trees and spends a lot of time thinking about trees and have a lot of trees and maintain a lot of trees. I love trees almost more than anything. Like where's the nationwide effort to reforest the United States. I don't see it. Instead, I see a lot of solar panels from China that don't work, that actually wreck the environment, industrial wind farms that wreck where I live. Like, I live near them. I know what they do. They kill all these birds of prey. It's like it's they're destroying the environment, but they're becoming richer. So on January 6th, tell me one solution that doesn't make you more powerful. Yeah. There's not one. So that's an indication of bad faith to me. And of course, you know, I'm not going to be boorish and I'll stop. But anyone who's interested in the uses to which January 6th has been put by the people in charge in Washington can look it up. I mean, the surveillance that was justified, the total capture of our banks, for example, by the FBI in the wake of January 6th is completely shocking to any civil libertarian. You can't call my bank and find out what I spent money on. You don't have a warrant. What? That's not allowed under our Constitution. But they did it because it was an insurrection. Okay. So, you know, I don't know. I can't even guess as the mechanics of January 6th. Did the federal, the many federal agents in the crowd do this? Did they go along? with? I don't know the answer and I'm not going to speculate. But I know in the aftermath of January 6th, that event was used by predators in our political sphere to increase their power and to disempower the population they supposedly serve. And I'm very offended by that. Not because I'm some crazed populist. I'm not. I don't want to burn anything down. I'm like very temperamentally conservative. I like to build things, not break them. 
But you can't look at me with a straight face and tell me you're defending democracy when you get J.P. Morgan to go through my credit card statements. You're lying. That's my only point. You're lying. Yes, it is a good point. So (laughs) (laughs) you're spinning me up, man. (laughs) I suppose that both the pandemic era and the current war can have that critique equally well yes. applied. Who benefits from this ability yes. to surveil and impose, uh, for example, vaccine passports? Who benefits from our inability to openly communicate on these subjects? It always appears that there is a sort of an invisible hand guiding these events, guiding the conversation, amplifying certain voices, diminishing others. And it always appears to somehow benefit centralist authoritarian institutions be they governmental corporate anti-human and war does it especially and if i can and if you'll pardon me and i don't mean this as criticism of your country which i love but i've spent the last week in in england and i've driven all around it's nice isn't it what's it's beyond belief how pretty it is um but one thing that just i can't get over is the stark change the stark change in architecture between 1939, when you all entered the war, after the invasion of Poland, and 1945, when you, quote, won, okay? Architecture changed completely, and it went from designs that complemented the landscape around them and local material, you know, used in ways to, I think, elevate the human spirit to a kind of architecture that clearly hates people that is designed to oppress the human spirit and make people feel without value, worthless, and that is ugly and disposable and made out of materials that are not worthy to be lived in, that are disgusting. And you see that not just in England, but also in the United States. Pre-war, as you well know, is a selling point for apartments in New York for a reason. Everything changed with the war. And there's something about war that changes people in a very, very deep way, down to the architecture, which is an expression of how we feel about each other. The buildings that we build to house our fellow man say a lot about how we feel about our fellow man, in my view. And after the Second World War, I mean, it, com- it completely changed and it became very aggressively anti-people. Like, what kind of person could come up with brutalist architecture or its many tributaries? And there are many. Um, brutalism is just the most obvious one, but all architecture post-war is really kind of brutalist, actually. What are you saying when you build a building like that? You're saying that the people who occupy the building are worth nothing. That's what you're saying. Whereas you drive to the Cotswolds and people in the pre-industrial age with no electricity and no machines built buildings that are still standing and true to this day using local limestone and thatch. And the result was beautiful. And by the way, I'm not just saying this as an Anglo whose ancestors lived in this country. I'm saying this just as a human being. I think if you brought someone from the streets of Tokyo to the Cotswolds and said, what do you think of that building? He would say that's beautiful because beauty is inherent. Every person recognizes beauty. Okay, it's not culturally specific, actually. A Shinto temple in Kyoto, I recognize it immediately as beautiful because it is because it's it's consistent with the symmetry of nature. Um, But the war changed. War always does that. War makes people less human. It hurts them in some deep way. Even the survivors I'm talking about, even the ones whose legs weren't blown off. It's interesting to me how often you appear to be referring to the ulterior energetic force, emotion or essence of a thing. Yes. I.e. that beauty 
could perhaps be the manifestation of love. I've yes, obviously myself observed many times that municipal and state buildings were once plainly an expression of a contract between the people yes. and their government of a yes. good faith relationship. <laughs> I, think that. I, just, I just thought that I walked up with my wife in the rain on a village hall in a Eastlich in this town of the Cotswolds, and the village hall was so beautiful. And I thought, whoever built that cared about the people. It was built by the people who live there for the people who live there. And they loved the people who live there because they were related to them or knew them. And that hall, I mean, I, it was built by peasants without machines. Yes. It's impossible to ignore, though, uh, it, it, that beneath these, uh, even these architectural changes that you refer to, is an insidious economic ideology, i.e. that it's, of course, there is a kind of a disdain for the population and the public, and this disdain is something we're continually talking about, whether it's the media, whether it's the state, whether it's private corporations, you can kind of tell they don't like you, and yes. that they don't respect you. So when populist figures emerge, i.e. most notably Trump, who somehow seems to give timbre to this idea that, hey, they don't like us very much. It's pretty plain that, you know, for a while, you, when you... Right there, that's Trump's appeal right there. When you were talking about Roosevelt a moment ago, that he came from, the, you know, the bourgeoisie or the intelligentsia, it's sort of notable that uh, there, there's a requirement for an alliance between people who understand, experientially, uh, systemic, uh, uh, the way that systems conduct themselves, the way systems operate, the bourgeoisie, the intelligentsia, whatever word you want to use for that critique, and ordinary people. This, I believe, is the, uh, the communicative Bridge that needs to be built. I've long felt that it is disgusting that most uh, people now feel voiceless, and uh, not most, many people feel that their electoral agencies are not worthy of trust, media is not worthy right. of trust. There will never be another election, I don't imagine, in your country, Tucker, where the other side goes, oh, well done, <laughs> winning that election. Whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans, the other side is just going to go, it was corrupt, it was disgusting, look right. at these machines, there were That's Russian right. agents involved, right. you can't rely on this. So there, there there is much that needs to be healed, and, and obviously what we continually offer here is that what's required is indeed, beyond an investigation and an interrogation of those agencies, new systems of decentralization to move democracy as close as possible to the people affected by it, which I suppose is a principle that's evident in federalism, but something that we can discuss more in a moment. Tucker Carlson has talked about the great beauty of this nation in some ways, and I mean this with all due love and respect to our cousins across the Atlantic. Atlantic, a country that in a way invented your country a little bit. You've just had Independence Day. It, it was a mistake to throw all that tea into, into What do you mean in some Boston? ways? It, it definitely invented our country. I mean, we're, we're an English country. And with what a lovely language we gave you and all. <laughs> and uh, so I, but, you know, it was a temporary celebration of what we do here in this country. Here's a word from our sponsors. Please stay with us because afterwards me and Tucker are going to talk a lot more about the military-industrial complex, how deeply embedded they are in the system. I'm going to ask Tucker, even though there are probably contractual restrictions for what Tucker can and can't talk about, I'm going to say, why do you reckon Fox Thatcher? Do you reckon it was Jan 6? Do you reckon it's they speaking out too much, a bit too much Glenn Greenwald on a Sunday afternoon? <laughs> what was it exactly that you reckon? So stay with us. Also consider joining me for community and indeed my comedy special during the pandemic period, Brandemic. Have a look at these messages. We're going to be back and asking Tucker the kind of questions that he would ask people while laughing. Oh, I know. I'm sure you believe it. Oh, that's fantastic. See you in a second. <laughs> fantastic there. Yeah, do join us if you can. We've got some fantastic, uh, com uh, some fantastic questions still to come. Some of them sent in by you. Press the red button. Join us on Locals. Right now that we're deeply embedded in Rumble, why the hell did you leave Fox? Tell us the truth. What are you not permitted to say? <laughs> to 
tell us, tell us. <laughs> so is it, do you think they sacked you because of Jan 6? Do, they think, do you think they sacked you because you're too anti-establishment, too anti-war? Uh, what do you, well, tell us. I honestly don't know. I, I will say, um, you know, my views changed dramatically over the course of 20 years. As, I, mm. as I've said many times, I was a kind of half-hearted booster of the war in Iraq, which is hard to believe. Um, but, you know, that was in 2003. And so my views for the last 20 years have been, and I realized and I've repented of that and I I feel sick even thinking about it now. But, um, but my views have remained pretty much the same for the last 20 years. They've evolved, you know, as things have changed. But in general, I've been skeptical of the storylines and all kinds of different things. And I certainly was for the 14 years I was at Fox. And they were always, they didn't agree with me, of course, I don't think. But they were always very nice to me, and they always let me say what I wanted. Not one time did they tell me not to say anything. So I was always grateful to Fox, and I am in retrospect grateful to Fox for that. So that never changed up until the moment they called me and said, you know, we're taking the show off the air. And so I can only speculate. I know, but I do think as a general matter, not even about me, the war in Ukraine is a red line for for a lot of people in business and politics. And you see it in our politics in the U.S. where the leaders of the Republican Party in the Congress, who really are repulsive, in my view, um, are now supporting sending cluster bombs to Ukraine. Ukraine is losing the war, obviously. Uh, the United States could, and Ukrainians are dying in huge numbers, and the country's being destroyed. And so the U.S. could force a peace like tonight. They could. Mm. Uh, uniquely, they have that power. Um, and they won't. And they're continuing to allow Ukrainians to be killed and the country to be devastated. So um, I don't know their motive. I can only guess. But I know that if you criticize that, they they really are intent on making you be quiet. With the pandemic being reframed in such a short period of time and with this cultural amnesia always being has it been reframed in a sense, it has like we now know that there were no clinical trials for transmission, that 96 percent of people <laughs> oh, they were lying. asymptomatic <laughs> cannot spread the disease. Okay. That there were considerable like the myocarditis, all of that. Oh. The lockdowns didn't You're making work. me feel bad for getting all those shots. <laughs> that to me, that, uh, that, that the six feet to 10 feet was arbitrary. Oh. And, and and now we're and now we're looking and now already we're being invited to kind of forget that that sort of happened. <laughs> do you and and with Biden inadvertently saying Iraq instead of Ukraine? Do you do you feel that that is that these kind of Freudian errors are simply because in time we will regard this conflict in the way we regarded Iraq? This is not to say not sympathetic towards Ukrainian people, but that it was a war primarily motivated by the interests of the military industrial complex, the stated plan for BlackRock to rebuild Ukraine in a comparable way that Halliburton were able to exploit the conflict in Iraq and indeed a secondary agenda to diminish Russia's capacity to be a superpower on the world stage. Do you think these things will become explicit and broadly accepted? And in a similar way, the people that have been rallying for war using peculiar tropes that we always assume to be of the right of patriotism and a lack of alliance, do you think that those people will undergo some kind of reckoning, Tucker? I hope so. I mean, the key to joy and wisdom is admitting that you're not God. That is that is the key. That's the key to life, in my opinion, admitting you're not God. And if you can't do that, you are doomed because you're not God. By the way, that's a fact that you can't change. You were not God. OK, period. Breaking um, news for me. News. So it's so, pretty hard, that one. <laughs> that's the moment. That's my take home. Oh, OK, well, that's it. I'm out. <laughs> it's essential 
um, to happiness and to honesty to admit when you're wrong. And it's so freeing. I mean, it's the basis of the recovery movement. I realized I was powerless and and I, I just have lived that. And I understand very well, personally, the human impulse to hide being wrong. No one wants to admit being wrong because yes. in so doing, you admit you're you lack the power that you pretended that you had. But I just find it so liberating. I was wrong. I thought this. It turned out not to be true. I was wrong. I didn't know. I am not God. Once you say that, everything, then you realize you have nothing to be afraid of. By the way, everybody already knows what you're lying about. People know who you are. I tell my children this all the time. You think you're getting away with it. I'm secretly whatever it is. (laughs) Everybody already knows. And they love you anyway, or they hate you anyway. It doesn't matter. We know because we can smell. We're like dogs. We know who the other person is instantly. All the pretense is pointless. And so how beautiful is it to just say, nope, here's who I am. Yeah. And they can't. And I look at someone like Tony Blinken, who's our secretary of state, who's obviously way over his head, not a genius, but probably above average in cleverness, but not, you know, he's not like a great statesman or a great person or whatever. And he feels, you know, I just, you just watch him on television. He feels this burden to pretend, I'm Secretary of State. I got it all under control. You have no freaking idea, Tony Blanket. Like, you have no idea what's going to happen. You've been wrong again and again and again, but you can't admit it. So you're terrified of being exposed. And what, and this is, a, I'm not attacking Tony Blinken or singling him out. I hope not unfairly. This is where we all find ourselves. God, I hope nobody knows, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. I'm secretly gay or I gained 20 pounds or I'm actually very vain. Everyone already knows. Calm down. Just admit it. And I hope people who are wrong about COVID can take the life affirming path of admitting the dignity preserving. When you admit you're wrong, you actually preserve your dignity. When you continue to lie, you lose your dignity. People don't get that. They think it's the opposite. Oh, I have to. No, I was actually, I was kind of, you know, stop the bullshit. We all know. (laughs) Admit it and become fully human. Then you can respect yourself. How can you respect yourself if you're lying? You can't. This is, I believe, the undergirding idea of perennialism by Aldous Huxley in where where he contrasts various theologies and notes that the primary idea, whether it's in the Vedas or coming from Meister Eckhart, is this transcendence of self, the acknowledgement that this vessel, this idea, this synaptic crash of self, this mess of memory and projection can be transcended through and via a connection to God. And yes. this I was wrong ultimately becomes I was irrelevant. The rustleness is irrelevant. There is a way through this. There is a pathway. The denial of this transcendence or even this imminent relationship with a higher power, a higher force, defines our age of materialism, yes. rationalism. All things can be measured in ways. This is why you have lumpen and brutal block buildings abundant and an annihilation of elegant thatch strewn across the countryside because there is the denial of beauty there is a denial of god and i feel that because there are challenges to our power the idea that a flower is more beautiful than anything we could create and that a white pine is more enduring than anything we will ever build like we that's such a challenge the idea that there are mysteries we can't explain yes. this is why they call you a conspiracy nut this is why they become hysterical when you raise questions that challenge their version of events because what you're really doing it's not even about january 6th or ufos or the kennedy assassination it's about revealing their limits 
Yes. They don't have the answers and they can't admit it because admitting that they don't have the answers is the same as admitting they're not God. And I'm only saying that's the most liberating thing you can do. It's curious how sort of how it can be uh, distilled to something so identifiably personal. Like I saw you once interview someone who went, no, no, I do the same. I do the same. <laughs> like, like when I think you were talking about gun laws or something. But in a way, people want feudal power. People want total power. I want absolute dominion over my life. But there now is, of course, a tendency to mask this intention. Yes. The idea that this is this is for your security. This is <laughs> exactly. for your safety. We are trying to help you. What was it? This is what sort of busted me up, Tucker, during the just whole... Just goose step for me. <laughs> Stop lying! What's the big deal? <laughs> we just, just march through Nuremberg. <laughs> totally true, though. I'm more comfortable with that. Just put on a uniform and point a gun at me. Stop telling me it's for my own good. You're lying. Like, I know that's not true. Authoritarianism necessarily had to become veiled. Those kind of optics of the rallies and the flags was uh, identifiably a problem. We, but the, the urge and the will to power has remained consistent. Of course. Yeah, this is, I suppose, in a sense, where, where we uh, appear to align very strongly is that we don't like being told what to do, that we're willing to surrender, willing to learn, willing to take on new ideas. A few more just little personal questions. They're not personal. They're about your career. Uh, how do you feel about the FBI hacking your phone, mate, with the Putin thing and being <laughs> called a Putin puppet? A Putin puppet. Um, I've never, the Putin puppet thing I've never taken seriously. I am a passionate Tolstoy fan. No. Predates Putin, by the way. Um, I love Tolstoy, and I mean that. The Kreutzer Sonatas, I just read it, an amazing book. Uh, Is that that thing where you talk about Christianity? Have you read them essays on Christianity? Yeah, well, of course I have. And I'm not sure I quite agree. The Kreutzer Sonata is all about how sex is bad, which I strongly disagree with. But it's just he's just an amazing writer. But that's, I've never been to Russia. I don't speak the language. I have no special, I mean, the whole thing is insane. And by the way, I've always, I mean, I, that never bothered me because... I'm the most American. I'm so American. It's like a joke. Yeah, you are really American. I'm the most American person I've ever so met. You're so good American. You've been here so American. Ever since you've arrived on the premises, you've been so American. You're shaking people out. An American just turned up inadvertently, just by <laughs> magnetized by you. Someone Asking came, people personal I'm questions. I'm from Sacramento. How are you? Where do you live? You've been all American everywhere, <laughs> spilling your Americana no, up everything. It's so true. It's so and it. Exactly. For good and bad. Mostly hey, bad. But I want to ask you an important question, I think. Uh, this. There's nothing to suggest that the state of nation is a permanent one. It's a relatively recent advent. It's pretty plain that one of the ways that the cultural war can be continually leveraged, even issues where I imagine you have uh, strong views, uh, and, and indeed these are arguments that define your country, certainly more than mine, although everyone's affected by them, pro-gun versus gun control, pro-choice versus pro-life, the identity politics issues. Are we ever, as a, as a, you know, there's nothing in our evolution that would suggest we should live in countries of 300 million people all following a single credo. Isn't it necessary and indeed obvious that this ulterior driving energy, be that through technology or different forms of identification. I mean, imagine if like 2,000 years ago you'd grabbed someone from Iceland and someone from Sudan and someone from London and said, right, you lot, you're all the same, live together according exactly. to one bit. It'd be That's an exactly absurd right. thing to, to do. So aren't we, isn't it obvious and necessary that what has to change is the nature of democracy itself? And would you, and, and, and I guess I imagine I can guess, because you've said about, you know, shooting's a hobby of yours. You've already said that you are uh, anti-abortion. Um, 
would you be willing to, as it were, stand on an ideological, if not political, ticket with people that had opposite views on you when it came to, like, trans and raising kids trans and stuff like that, if it meant that you and your community would be completely at liberty to raise your children and run your community how you wanted to? Well, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've no plans to stand for office. Um, is that the same as running for office? Yeah, we stand. You stand, we run. (laughs) I've come here. Now, I'll be here for a while. Simply elect me. Hey, can I have some power? (laughs) And in America, we run as fast as we can. Sprinting about, gathering up them donations. But, of course, and by the way, I mean, the real, like, the Tower of Babel didn't work for a reason. That is commentary on, you know, written by the ancient Hebrews 3,000 years ago, but still a sort of deep commentary on people and how to organize the society. And, like... Human differences, I said at the outset, people are united in their value. I think their value, each person's value is identical because they're all created by the creator. But people are different. I mean, they are. I have four children. They're not all the same, right? People are, are different. And um, and they kind of live the way they want to live. And it's sort of any effort to make them live in ways that you want them to live that they don't want to live like is doomed to concentration camps kind of in the end. Like you need to use a lot of force to make people uh, change basic habits that they've decided they want. So um, that suggests to me much smaller administrative zones or countries or whatever you want to call them. The problem is technology makes it really easy to manipulate huge groups of people Uh, The drive out here from London. My driver is from Brazil, a country I love. It's very similar to the United States in a lot of ways. And she's from southern Brazil. And I said, there are Brazilians in London. Yeah, but most are from the north. Do you see them? No, I, I don't see them. I don't, I don't trust them. I don't like them. Oh, they're, from southern, they're from northern Brazil. Okay. Um, <laughs> so like, these are subtleties that I can't. And I said, well, why don't you split it into two countries? And she said, everybody wants to, but we can't because we've got a central government and it's not in their interest. And I thought that's the story of a lot of the yeah, world. Yeah. It really is. That, like, I have a lot in common with my neighbors I lived on a street in Washington for many years where I had, I think everyone on the street voted differently from the way I vote. We had, there were a bunch of different races on the street and I felt like we had a lot in common. And I think everyone on the street felt that way about everyone else because it was our street. Do you know what I mean? So like we would have been a pretty good self-governing country of, you know, 11 houses or whatever in Northwest DC because we had this fundamental thing in common, which is geography. And I do think ultimately we'll get back to that if, um, because I think it's a much more natural way. Uh, you know, loose alliances of small places is a much more natural way to govern, um, in my opinion. But, you know, we're a long way from that. Yes, and, and it seems that the homogeneity ultimately is driven by systems of dominion and the requirement for profit. Exactly. And that the ideology is secondary and its function is to create division. That's its point. Even when we as a team start talking about how do we talk to Tucker about trans issues, cultural issues, when we're talking about it, we start saying, oh, it's difficult, isn't it? Like, you know, as soon as we start talking about uh, trans athletes or uh, uh, virtue signaling or positive affirmation, it becomes, in a sense, it becomes divisive. My personal uh, position is, like, the way I raise, I want to raise my children how I want to raise my 
children. Of course, you have to immediately caveat that with, of course, there are some areas where you think, well, what if people are mistreating their children in ways that are obvious? You immediately have to asterisk that. But that aside, I want to raise my children how I want to raise my children. I don't want anybody else telling me how to raise my children. And I recognize that the price of that is other people are going to raise their children how they want to. And the, the aesthetics of that and the descriptions of that are almost none of my business. Well, well stop. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, that's a whole separate, you know, the question of whether you should be told how to raise your children by people who don't have children, <laughs> which is where we wind up, we wound up now. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Okay, so where we here we are. Like, um, is it possible for anyone left in the mainstream media to say what they think? That's from at Lorna, who's one of our followers on Locals. Um, I, I can answer that really clearly. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, you can within certain boundaries. Mm. You know, like you can be against Bud Light or for Bud Light or whatever, but you you can't say Ukraine is not a democracy. So stop saying we're fighting for democracy. You cannot say that. Right. No one does. Hey, this is from at Sunpatch Patriot. With all these conspiracy theories coming out as true, is there anything that is still covered up that you think holds weight? You know, now with more information about UFOs and stuff, do you think there's anything that's not been uncovered that you... you <laughs> yeah! <laughs> Biden just reclassified the Kennedy document 60 years after his assassination. No one, even peripherally involved, is still alive. So what could possibly be the sources and methods that we're supposedly showing the world by declassifying these are so outdated they're irrelevant. They were using disappearing ink in 1963. So why in the world would we be continuing to hide the truth about the Kennedy assassination 60 years later? And of course the answer is obvious because it implicates not individuals, but institutions and and reveals them as 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 complicit in a in a murder and in the overthrow of the US government. And uh, the US government is complicit in the overthrow of the U.S. government. And that's the truth. I, I know that for a fact, because I interviewed someone who saw the documents. Um, and so, you know, we have a long way. Look, the bottom line is, unless there is a compelling reason that relates to imminent physical security of citizens, we should never hide the truth from the population in a democracy, period. Because that's that is incompatible with democracy. Secrecy is incompatible with democracy. How can I? I'm running the government, but you can't tell me what the government's doing. That's, that's not democracy. That that's it's something else. And don't insult me by calling it a democracy because it's very much not. And so yes, there is much that remains secret. I'm not going to speculate. You don't need to be a conspiracy nut. We have in the United States, we have over a billion federal documents that remain classified. A billion, going back to the Second World War. So. That's a democracy? That is not a democracy. It's just not. Tell me how it is. Yes, in a sense, the very category of classified, except in matters of national security, yes. obviously indicates a kind of parental relationship. You used the yes. metaphor. Thank you. That's exactly, I'm stealing that. That's it, exactly, it indicates a parental relationship. That's right. And I didn't We're locking the that. bedroom door. You can't know what's happening in here. Yeah. I want to know what's going on in there. Although, when I did look once, it was disgusting. Listen, we're going to do a little bit on uh, locals. So if you're watching this on locals right now, you're welcome. We'll see you in a second. Press the red button on the bottom of your screen and join us in locals. We're going to play true and uh, true or false. Not true and false. That's complex. If we play the game true and false, <laughs> you will become... Cone. Oh, my God. It's simultaneously true and false. You're now enlightened. Welcome. Welcome to the limitless bliss that was always within you all along. Uh, you can follow Tucker. 
like it on Twitter, obviously, at Tucker Carlson, where you can see upcoming interviews with Ice Cube and the Tate Brothers. Yeah, maybe I'll ask you about that and the Great. interview and them Tate Brothers. We're going to go over to Locals now. Press the red button on your screen. We'll just chat for about 10 minutes. Also, I'm in a pull-up competition with RFK. I've got, I've got beat RFK in a pull-up competition to raise 100 grand. You can donate by going to kennedy24.com forward slash pull-up. He's going to kill me. Have you seen his mad white? Look at his arms, Tucker. His How, arms are thicker than my torso. He's years old. Look at the bar he's using. It's like a murder weapon. <laughs> How can I compete with that? I'm never going to get there. We've already got like we're up to like 21 grand. So if you 24 grand, if you uh, don't want me to have a competition with this man who will plainly win, donate to that campaign. If you're watching us on Locals, we'll see you in a second for a little more chat. Join us next week, though. Not for more of the same. We'd never insult you with that crap. But for more of the different. Until then, stay free. Thank you, Tucker Carlson. <laughs> see you in a second on Locals. Okay then, that was fun. Um, I hope you I hope you enjoyed it and got a little information, perspective on reality from Tucker and uh, Russell Brand's <laughs> position. Now we're going to go to July of 2013 when Dolores Cannon was at a conference and speaking about. She calls them backdrop people. I tend to call them background people, and uh, some people call them. Uh, uh, not playing character from the well, they'll explain that in, a, in another segment. But not playing characters is part of the video game thing. Um, so she's going to set this up. She was the first person that even mentioned something like this, and I had an experience where I actually went to an airport, and nobody was there except me and the ticket taker takers, and it was the day before Thanksgiving. And they were freaked out, and I was freaked out. And then I went to the bathroom, and when I came out, there were all these people again. So if I hadn't had that experience, we're time time thing here, I'm rushing this. So if I hadn't had that experience, I probably would have kind of blown off what she was saying, because I actually heard this back in 2013. So um, we're going to listen to that, and then we're going to get an update on what has happened since 2013. What Where is the... Where is the uh, messaging, or what is the messaging concerning background people, backdrop people, or uh, uh, NPCs, they call them, non-playing characters? Okay, so here we go with Dolores. But here he's talking about backfill people, and I've got backdrop people. And so I asked him to come up because uh, everybody keeps wanting more information about it. And all I had was what I wrote about. Well, now I'm getting more information because it's coming through more and more people. It's like when the concept is ready, then we get more and more information keeps coming in. They know when I'm ready and I'm supposed to present it to the world. Okay. Well, the idea, nothing is real anyway. Everything is energy. Everything is illusion. This building where you're sitting right now did not even exist until you collectively chose to come here tonight or today. Wrap your head around that. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to make sense because every time I brought that up, they'll say, What? <laughs> It's like a Stephen King movie they had one time where nothing existed before they got there. 
That's right. I mean, what you're doing is you're creating your own realities, and now you've created a huge group reality. And without the huge group reality, this wouldn't exist. But this shows you, too, how powerful your mind is. Because everything you see, everything that's around you, everything in your life, you're creating and putting there to fill up your, your world. So that means you can create anything. Nothing is impossible. You can change your life. You can have anything in your life at all. They told me one of the biggest lessons you come to Earth to learn is how to manipulate energy. You can't get out of the Earth school and graduate till you learn how to manipulate energy. What does that mean? Create. You have to learn to create. Because this is how powerful your mind is. You can create anything. So that means every time you go anywhere, even go back to your house, it is recreated every time you go into it. I always wonder, where does it go in the meantime? <laughs> it's just space. <laughs> back into whatever. But when these concepts began coming up, you know, this is it's a little unnerving. But the backdrop people was really uh, scrambled my brain. And everywhere I go now, they'll say, tell us more about the backdrop people. Okay. You're creating. This is your movie. This is your play. You are, are the, it's all that life is anyway. It's just a game. It's just a play. It's just an illusion. You're going to leave here with your brains really spinning. <laughs> Okay, but I've had people say that when they go through the death experience in the past life, they look back and they'll say, it's just a play. I see all the actors on stage getting ready to play their parts. I see the actors in the wings getting ready to come on stage and play their parts. It's just a play. But when I was there, I took it so seriously, but now it's like a blink of an eye. So you are the producer, director, and actor in your own play. You're also the script writer, but the script isn't written. It's written as you go along. So you see you can change it any time you want. We get so trapped into thinking there's no way out. Not, you know, that this is all there is. When you realize how powerful your mind is, you can create anything you want. This is the goal, the main thing of being alive, is knowing, learning how to create. And now when the veil is thinning, we're moving into this new earth, we're into the shifting, we're bringing all these abilities back. This is what you're supposed to learn how to do. Okay, but this is your movie. Now, they said, it, it wouldn't be a very good movie, would it, if you were the only person in the movie? Isn't that true? They said, people like people around them. So what they would do, we don't know this, none of this is done consciously. You have the backdrop people. When you cast a movie... What do you do? You cast all these extras, don't you? To fill in the background. 
the backdrop. He calls them the backfill. You cast all the extras to play all the parts of all the people. Those are the backdrop people. And when I go into a crowded airport now, I think, oh boy, look at all the backdrop people I've just created. <laughs> I shouldn't have put so many into this. <laughs> but this is what makes it even stranger. The backdrop people are not real. They're not real people. They're not anything. They are energy. It's just energy. Everything is energy. That's why I want him to come up here because, come on up, guy. Thank because you. when I was asking about him, I said, you got your information your way, I got mine, and we were comparing what we've got because I had so many questions. And now I'm getting more information about it. And so I think everybody here is real. I'm not sure. <laughs> Pinch yourselves quickly and see if you are real. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, um, and I know we're going to have a lot of questions about this concept. <laughs> um, they said, because you couldn't go through your own movie by yourself. You have to have other people. Now, the people in your life, those are real. Those are the ones that are on the evolutionary plan, path. We have come in to evolve, to grow, to learn lessons, to reincarnate. We're the ones that are evolutionizing. They're real, and you've made these contracts with all these other people, but these other ones are not. And I said, uh, do they have souls? They said, no. They're just energy. They said, it's holographic. It's like being on the holodeck on Star Trek. You know when you're on the holodeck, the, uh, they interact with these people, they're real, but then the minute they walk off the holodeck, all these people dissipate. Well, the they said, thing. I said, uh, can they advance? And they said, yes, they can evolve. There's a possibility of that, but they're still not on the uh, evolutionary path that we are on. They're different. They're a completely different energy set. The, the energetic genre of mankind is a very high frequency, very high energy. And these guys, are, they're, they're lower. Lower, denser energy. Earth is the densest, lowest planet in the universe to live on. It's the most difficult planet to live on. When you come here, they said we're at the bottom. The so dense and heavy. So a lot of these people are made up of that dense energy. But me and Julie have had a lot of discussion about this too. And we said, what would happen if I would go up and interact with one of these people? Because, you know, you see them talking and all of that. What would happen if I would go up and interact with them? Would they be real? Then I think it goes along with the idea, okay, you've got your movie. Now you suddenly gave one of these extras a bit part. They have a little speaking part in the movie. <laughs> but um, a lot of times, too, when you interact with people, it's the way you interact. You know, sometimes if they need help or you're talking to them like that, that to me is you are helping your own evolvement. Maybe you're helping them also. Yeah. The ones that are very negative. 
They're like the bottom. Those are the very low, dense energies. But they're here. all of this is here to teach us something. That's what it's all about. That's what life is all about anyway. What are you learning? Everything that happens to you, you created to learn from it. So you hear about these things on TV, the murders and the, the violence going on. How does it affect you? What do you learn from that? That's the lesson of these other entities, to teach us something. And they've told me that before, and it was in my book, Between Death and Life, that if you didn't have these as examples, you wouldn't know what not to do from a moral standpoint. Because everybody has bad things that happen in their life, but they have put them there. Before you come into the life, you make your plan, and you make the plan of the events in your life that are going to help you grow. And I have so many clients that have had horrible childhoods and horrible lives, but I always ask them, what did you learn from it? That was the purpose. That's why they put those events in their life to learn from. And some of them will say, well, I didn't learn anything. It was just a bad experience. Then guess what? According to the law of karma, the law of what we're here for, you have to repeat that class until you learn that lesson. So I tell them, if you learned even one thing from the circumstance, that was the reason for you creating it. Look how powerful your minds are. (laughs) And you're brought back with the same people. Same circumstance. You don't get out of anything. Same people, some same circumstances. You just have to repeat it over, and it's always harder the next time. Just like a class in school. So you don't, and they, some people will tell me, well, I don't want to have anything to do with that person anymore. I don't want them in my life anymore. I certainly don't want to have to do it again. And I said, you better work it out now. That's the law of karma. See, we've been taking baby steps so far in my books and in the uh, conferences, and now I guess it's getting to where we're beginning to be ready for the hard stuff. We're progressing into college, maybe. (laughs) I was getting more information about it, and they've kept saying it's holographic. But I think now our minds are ready for this kind of information, and we can understand it, because... You're great and powerful beings. You're not at the mercy of the world. I hate it when I get clients coming in that are in the victim mode. Oh, you don't know what happened to me. I mean, this is a horrible life, etc., etc. You listen to this for about an hour, then I tell them, oh, for Pete's sake, get out of the victim mode. <laughs> everything that happened, you created it for yourself. And we're going to conclude today with John Nolan giving you the reasons, the spiritual battle, and why the background people, you know, are something that we have to consider and understand as well as we can. So he's very informative. He has a new take or, you know, it's, it's, it's a good presentation. Thank you all. Be safe. We certainly did. Christina and I did a, a Honey Talks, our show on Locals yesterday, and we talked about it, just in case you want to go check it out on inspired.locals.com. We're healthy, we're wealthy, we're whole, we're free. Remember that. That's the mantra of the Inspired Livestream, and I think it's an important mantra. If you say it often enough, it, it 
really permeates your cells and your DNA. That's important. I want to welcome Kay and Ronnie. Good to see you. I'm Crypto. Cheryl, Jermaine uh, Arminas, TNA Plastic. I mean, these, these names are creative. Uh, Francis is here. Kevin is here. Good to see you. Kevin Bailey, good to see you, my friend. Um, Essie is here. It's good. To, it's so wonderful that you all are tuning in. Well, let's talk about something that uh, was one of the most popular subjects last over the last year in our channel. I can't believe the, the amount of emails, comments, and messages we received over over the videos we did on NPCs and backdrop people, so non-player characters and backdrop people. W- what are they, right? So we're going to go a little bit into what they are and how to deal with those people if they're really people. And it's kind of the controversy that people had. They said I was disrespectful or I was, um, you know, condescending. And I, I don't ever mean to be, but when you when you go into things and, and you kind of take the emotion out of it, right? And you really examine things and you re- examine facts, then you come to certain conclusions that you wouldn't come to if you allow yourself to be emotionally guided in that. So this is this is why I believe um, that we need to talk about it. So NPCs for the gamers out there, which I'm not, but gamers told me that's what they're called, non-player characters. Basically, they're characters in a video game that are there kind of like extras in a movie, but they don't really have a role. They're not players. They don't really do anything. It's like the cheering crowd or um, just, you know, uh, pedestrians walking by. And um, Dolores Cannon, uh, she was a a famous metaphysical spiritual author and uh, wrote many great books. Uh, She talked about and and referred to these people as backdrop people. I encourage you to go look it up. Uh, She speaks about this uh, here on YouTube. And on Rumble, uh, she speaks about this and what they are and, and, and what her information on them is. But in a nutshell, you could call them not real people or soulless people. And I would I would venture to say that what determines if a being is real, a human being is real, is does does that human being have a soul, a spirit? If it doesn't have one it's it's really a meat suit, right? And this is where people say, well, it's condescending. But, well, I've, I've been on this place often enough and I've been here long enough to, you know, I've, I've had a lot of experience with these meat suits and they just aren't real people. You, you, you don't find any of the real characteristics. Now, is everyone who behaves in a certain way an NPC? No, I don't believe so. There's other factors, contributing factors. There's a heavy programming and mind control that sometimes make people... Thoughtless, motionless. Yes, I agree. Um, but there is a good portion of the society out there, of the population, that are real NPCs. And these NPCs are s- sort of like multipliers. Uh, they don't have a lot of, of course, they don't have they don't have creative power. They don't have a lot of any kind of force. But in, in sheer numbers, um, they have a, a kind of, of, of force and power. We've seen this over the, this over the last years. The behavior of some of these NPCs and backdrop people—it's—it's a complete—it's um, it, like completely programmed and steered from outside of them. There's no intuition. There's no inner guidance. They're—they're they're basically just yes people. They'll do anything that they're told to do. And again, I know this kind of sounds horrible, but it's the truth. I can't help it. It's the truth. They exist. They're out there. They're kind of everywhere. And we have a phenomenon that we see now, and I believe uh, there's a difference between 
people who uh, accepted certain medical treatments that are actually spirited people and people that have accepted certain medical treatments that are non-spirited or non-soul people, non-player characters. I believe these are the first ones now, the NPCs who are, um, I'm sorry to put it that way, they're kind of zombifying. I mean, the, the things that we're observing, that we're seeing out there are just, I mean, they are what they are. You know, Max Egan kind of puts it beautifully always. He says, you know, it's just playing out now. There's there's really no turning back from this. It is playing out. But uh, a lot of you, a lot of us, I shall say, really have the clear guidance to not go into huge crowds, not go into very crowded places. You know, for those of you who love going to festivals and concerts and stuff like that, in the last years, a lot of you, I know, haven't felt like it at all. As a matter of fact, going into crowds might be a challenge. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an artist and songwriter. I'll be honest with you. I, I I like a crowd when I'm on stage. I don't like to be in a crowd. Now, you ask Christine about it. Uh, that's a whole different story. She really doesn't like to be in crowds. But partially because the the vibration and frequency in large crowds has become so low for the most part. Unless people gather for a specific purpose that you know kind of springs from higher consciousness a movement um a a you know protest in a positive way then of course it's different but if you just go into random crowded places energetically speaking it is very very bad right now and you also see these horrific uh, supposedly random acts of violence um th that have increased heavily over the last years couple of years more than ever before and this erratic behavior, kind of a, a, a such an aggressive and a violent reaction to seemingly, you know, small things. We see that and, and people don't make the connection. These are soulless NPCs that react in that way. They're not real people. And, and, and that's why we see such a discrepancy in the behavior. And, and that's why people have the clear guidance to also move away. We haven't I think we have the, the biggest migration wave. Um, you know, short of, of course, the big migration waves coming into the United States in the, in the past hundreds of years. But in, in this century and probably even counting the 20th century, the movement of people between, you know, in the United States, within people that are moving from one place to another, people that are leaving cities, moving out into the country. It is absolutely astonishing big. And it is to a large degree because they don't feel at home anymore like they belong anymore. They can't relate to the a group of people that they might be surrounded by. And often they don't realize it is because they are surrounded by a lot of backdrop people. It simply isn't, it's not a very pleasant thing because you're, you're basically looking at empty shelves, right? Uh, there's not much there. Um, and I can't really speak to a lot of people say, well, that's part of a simu the simulation that we're in, right? If there was a simulation, if the, if this is a simulation, let me put it that way. Yeah, it would make sense that you have these fillers, these extras. Yes, certainly. Um, but I think these extras are currently uh, kind of being used and phased out at the same time. So when I talked about the zombification, I think the greatest um, trouble will probably come from large groups of, of such people that can be steered into erratic behavior. And because they now have so many access points to steer those people, steer those NPCs, that, that's why I think we're seeing some mass erratic behavior that is otherwise inexplicable. 
for us or for for people who do feel they have a spirit and they have a spiritual connection and they have a connection with the creator and connection with god um it is very very important to not get too invested in in the in the drama that is unfolding right i always say we kind of have to keep our eye on the ball just a little bit and and keep in touch with what's happening so we can make certain arrangements yes but for the most part it is really up to us to be really invested well you hear that that's that's montana our puppy in the background um it's really up to us to be invested more and more in this uh organic beautiful timeline that we want to bring about uh, the npcs the backdrop people will not be part of that timeline i can promise you that because there is no room for that because it's not authentic it's not real and anything that isn't authentic or real cannot exist in an authentic real natural divine timeline right so more and more people are stepping out of the artificial world whether that's um you know excessive use of technology whether that's living in the cities where where more and more things are being digitized and really becoming very very artificial on top of the concrete jungle that's already very artificial so people feel that natural nudge and it is really a time where we need to do the the necessary inner work for this ascension process that we're in ascension simply means that we are leveling up we're leveling up into a a, a different frequency and um in in into a way of living that's going to feel very different much lighter than it is now it's not going to be as dense as heavy and uh the the kind of violence and violent uh, society that we have inherently violent i will say this our communication um all of it is 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 very aggressive and violent right now we're 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 ascending beyond that if we do the inner work and the inner work means prayer and meditation first and foremost that is the main thing because it daily reconnects us with the divine and that there's no replacement for that to have that introspection you need to overcome the physical senses uh, which are the lowest form of perception for any being physical senses are the lowest form of perception they they are quite important don't get me wrong you want to smell if there's gas in the air uh, you want to make sure that you can taste something that is harmful to your body um, they are important but they are the lowest senses right they give us the least amount of information out of all the senses that are available to us which um the higher you go you go into the third eye uh you go into the what's happening over there montana's roaming around uh you go into the third eye the pineal the pineal gland uh, which you know we're going to talk about that uh, a little more in a very near future here uh, as frank jacob has announced his new webinar that's coming out on july 14th is actually exactly about that he calls it the inner looking glass and the activation of these uh, higher senses that allow us to perceive reality in a much more comprehensive and a co- more complex and 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 um in 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 a more comprehensive colorful deeper sounds uh deeper smells everything it just fills in all the missing pieces that our senses can't fill in and uh as we're we're now in this transitioning period and why i'm talking about these backdrop people because some of us and some of you might even have relatives that are kind of like backdrop people there's not much there there's just not much substance there and our deep deep desire to help everyone and bring everyone along can be hindering and unhealthy really it can be hindering and unhealthy and i i i really want you to walk with that thought for a little bit 
because you can't bring them along because it might not be in their path. It might not be time for them quite yet. We're all, um, as much as we are creating a collective journey, we're also all on our individual paths of development, spiritual development. And you simply can't force anyone into it. There is no forcing someone into leveling up or into becoming something they cannot be, right? Um, there's also, it's clear that um, be, that we cannot use violence, right? That we cannot use violence against those people apart from having to defend ourselves if that happens. But we can't use offensive violence because what that does is if you use offensive violence where you go and offensively seek to hurt someone, you're, I mean, the, the, the rate at which you're lowering your frequency and vibration is staggering because that aggression and violence level, it's way down here on the, uh, on the scale. There is a frequency of vibration scale. If bliss and joy and, and, and peace and harmony are way up here, then violence, aggression, anger is way down here. And it can't be both at the same time. So it's a matter of spiritual development that we, you really shouldn't resort to violence and aggression towards people unless, you know, it's warranted because you need to defend yourself. Um, it, it also, you know, it also becomes a thing of for parents, uh, where do you, where do you, who, who do you trust your children with, right? Um, because they are the precious generation to come. The beautiful thing that the natives, the indigenous people of North America have always said, we don't inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. And that's a much more beautiful way to look at it, I think. But for those of you who have younger children, school-aged children, um, I remember that time for us. It was a very conscious decision where we send our children to. You know, Do we send them to school? What kind of school? Who, who are they spending time with? Where are they? What are they exposed to for longer periods of time? Um, today, more than ever, it's social media, it's it's internet, it's making sure that um, they are in an environment that is actually conducive to what you want them to become, right? Or conducive to their development. I don't, you know, I don't think it's it's healthy for people to spend a lot of time with backdrop people that are simply tuned into a preset program. And again, I know this is controversial to say, uh, if, if, if people would classify backdrop people and NPCs as a separate race, then you, you could call me racist. Sure, you could do that. Um, but I believe that that which needs to be cultivated the most and that which is guiding the human story moving forward on this organic timeline is actually organic, natural, and uh, people with a soul, people that actually possess the spirit. Um, that's, that's, I think, what is most important. One another thing that we notice is um, traffic of all things is where these NPCs are currently uh, causing a lot of chaos. I mean, the, the amount of erratic behavior on roads that we've seen lately in the last months, it's just ever increasing. And again, especially in, in the cities and around the cities, it's becoming horrible. The, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but the, the level of, of you know, you can't even call it driving. You know, they're just, uh, you know, frantically uh, pushing a pedal and 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 turning a steering wheel. It's not driving. All of these things were kind of predestined, predetermined. There's a scene in, in the fourth Matrix movie, which, by the way, I thought it was a 
a mediocre movie at best. I, I didn't like it at all, to be honest. There's a scene in the Matrix movie. I think it's quite towards the end. We're at the push of a button or sending out of a frequency. Vast amounts of people react, right? Because they have been pre-programmed or equipped in a certain way. You know, who knows in certain ways equipped. Um, so they can later be steered accordingly. All of these things were kind of prophesized, and um, we kind of knew this was coming. It just the, the pieces, if you put them all together, that's what they're all what they all spell out. So we're seeing a a perfect convergence of all of these factors that lead to one clear conclusion: that we need to take one hundred percent responsibility for our lives right now, for the lives of our children and take positive and constructive and co-creative action to create the new and move out of these highly destructive and highly violent systems right now. Uh, you, you don't want to live in a world with, with NPCs. You don't want to live in a world with backdrop people uh, where th they are the guiding mass force. It's just, I, I don't want to, and, and I, I'm sure you don't want to. So in that, It also means that we have to withdraw from some of the relationships that are not working anymore. As a matter of fact, someone wrote, wrote us an email, I believe last week. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, it was a woman who wrote us an email. Of course, I'm not going to mention names. But she says, I think my husband is an NPC. I think my husband is a backdrop person. I didn't realize it before, but now I just see it so clearly. There's, there's no spirit. There's no soul. There's just emptiness. And I mean, let's be honest, you, you know, that's a shock. If you realize it, that's kind of a shock. And people are saying, man, some people have even said this about their children. They're like, I don't know what happened, but they're void of, there's just nothing there. And as I said, I do believe there are, there are differences. Um, we also have to realize that the way of life And the amount of influence from all areas, whether that's in a technological way or whether that's in a medical way, wherever you can influence the human being, it, it has all been aimed for the last hundreds of years at disconnecting you from your spirit. I mean, that's literally the aim of these forces, because those who are connected, those who feel a relationship with the creator, you you. I'd rather die than comply. You have to understand that. I'm not saying those are the only two choices, death or compliance, but I'm saying before I live on my knees and say, please, please, and thank you, and uh, whoever believes to be the authority, that's never going to happen. I have a spiritual connection. I, this is just a temporary experience, and I won't be a slave in this experience. Hell no, it's, not, it's just not going to happen, right? So for those of us who feel this deep connection, We are uncontrollable, literally uncontrollable. We will never do things that go against our moral compass, against our better judgment, against our values. Um, but there's a transitioning period that we are in. And in that, it's a balance between the co-creative part, between going into all these dark places and shining our light, and also withdrawing from other places because it's kind of like a battlefield where we have no race in a horse. Let these NPCs take care of each other if they need to. I mean, let them do it, right? Um, so th this is kind of the, sometimes you need to spell it out and also realize nothing changes overnight. The world doesn't change overnight. We're changing it in a meaningful way. 
but this transitioning period, it, it requires a lot of discernment and you have to make judgment calls all the time. It's not like it used to be even 15 years ago. You have to make judgment calls all the time and just say, no, no, like I'm not doing this. I'm not communicating with this person. I'm withdrawing. I'm deleting them from my life. That has to be a choice, right? So kind of wanted to address that today because I believe it's something that a lot of people don't have words for. Uh, they just notice that the relationships, the conversations, a lot of what's happening in the public arena has changed so drastically and they don't know why. There's multiple reasons, but one of them is the clear visibility. The more you wake up to who you truly are, the more you see what isn't truthful and authentic. That's clear, right? The, 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 the more you are true north on your compass, the more you realize everything that isn't. It's just everything is becoming so blatantly obvious. And it's it's almost like a cartoon in some ways. Like if you watch clips, I mean, the 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 person who identifies as the current president of the United States is a backdrop person. He's an NPC. I mean, that's like the definition of an NPC. The definition is just an empty vessel. Nothing there. Nothing there. So this discernment is necessary. These conversations are necessary. And this harsh truth is necessary. The, nobody said the Great Awakening and this period, this transitioning period, was going to be easy, comfy, or breezy, or any of those chill words. It's not. It's, um, you know, it sends us on the ultimate emotional roller coaster. And we are examining all our previous truths and realizing, well, we had it wrong. We have to change. We have to change how we look at the world. We have to change it how we look at ourselves. And we have to be really, really honest. It's kind of the look in the mirror where you go, no more bullshit. I see the truth and I got to live up to it. I think this is the most important thing right now. We got to become really authentic and truthful with ourselves. And uh, it's also the death of the ego. The ego won't help you, right? Uh, I mean, the ego might help you, you know, in, in a live or die situation kind of where it, it's a self-preservation. But for the most part, the ego is very much in the way because this is a spiritual evolution and a spiritual revolution. So that's kind of it on, on the backdrop, people. And uh, one, of our, uh, one of our friends and previous uh, participants at the ret retreats, Christina and I do, said, you know, you never say it like that, but you should actually tell people that the retreat that you guys are doing um, it's all about evolving on the spiritual, authentic, organic, natural human timeline. And I said, I can't believe I haven't thought of, it, of that. Janae told us this. She said, that's how you have to, you know, have to tell people that's what happens there. It's, it's really a spiritual evolution on that natural timeline. I said, it's so beautiful that you put it that way. I, I, you know, I've never had the words for it really, but I guess that's what we're doing. We're cultivating this natural timeline that we talk about um, that Frank Jacob and I have talked about and many others and many are seeing it now. Many are seeing that's a timeline they want to be on. So a quick, just a quick word on that. Um, I think we're, we're halfway full, but if, if you feel like, uh, a, you know, a deep shift experience might be in your near future, go check out the link in, in the description here for the Yado retreat that we're doing from October 5th through October 8th. We go deep, we do deep transformational experiences on a spiritual, physical emotional level um we go into deep meditations and really like janae said we cultivate the natural organic human timeline that's what it's all about and the beautiful thing is the connections that are made there the friendships the tribe connections it's just 
Beautiful. So information in a description. Uh, we haven't had NPCs there yet. They don't tend to come to these kinds of things. But it, we so look forward to to this one coming up in October. I, I actually, you know, I wish it would be here now uh, because of the expansion that happens over four days, three and a half days. It's just uh, we can never fully anticipate how far we're going to expand because we don't ever fully know what kind of what the group will be like. But recently in the past few, uh, they were just amazing, just an amazing group of people that really showed up and and was fully invested, you know, fully there, 100%. There's really only two things that we ask of our participants when they come is, hey, do you get 100% an inner yes to come to this retreat? Because that's what's needed. 90% won't do 100. And the second thing is you just can't be on any kind of mind-altering drugs, legal or legal. It doesn't work and never works, never has, uh, because these processes require people to be fully in touch with their emotional body, with their feelings, and that doesn't work with those drugs. So that's all. Uh, and if that speaks to you, if you feel like you want to be part of this experience, you're ready for a shift of energy, go check out the link in the description. See if that speaks to you. We'd love to have you. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, okay. T-E-S-T uh, or T-E-S-T probably came in late. Non-player character. That's what that stands for. Um, last but not least, before we log off, don't feel bad. Please don't feel bad about clarity that you gain on things. Don't feel bad about thinking, okay, that person is just a complete idiot. There's absolutely nothing that I could possibly communicate about with this person. Sometimes that's what it takes. Some people out there are just complete morons, complete idiots. They they, They don't have a brain connection. They have a heart connection. And it's just the way it is. It sounds harsh and call call me out for my judgment here, but you know it's the truth. You had these experiences where you walked away and go, <sighs> you know, sometimes you meet people where you're just absolutely happy that you're going to spend the rest of your life apart from them. And that's kind of how that is. But those judgment calls, those discernment calls, they are important because otherwise we get caught up in those stories. We get caught up in the wrong places. We waste time and energy and we don't have time and energy to waste. We currently have this transformational energy window that's open and we need to use it. You, us all together, we need to use this energy windows because they're not always open. It doesn't mean you can't always create change, but wouldn't you rather use some cosmic, uh, uh, tailwind that pushes you forward, that gives you opportunities that usually aren't there, wouldn't you rather use an expansion, a quantum leap expansion rather than pushing hard? Right now we have that opportunity. The window is open. The energy window is is ripe, but we have to use it. It will close, right? It will close. And, and many opposing forces are vying for this energy window because they know it too. They're using it too. It's up to us to take over, really take over, and, and, you know, get her done. Get her done, friends. All right, much love to you all. Also, last, last, but not least, <laughs> thank you. Two days ago, on July 3rd, um, I released my new song, Faith in Me. You can watch the video here. Uh, it's two videos down on this channel. Your comments, your reactions to the song, and, and many of you had no idea I was an artist and songwriter. I have been all my life. They were so heartwarming, literally. Uh, 
you know, it doesn't happen often. You know, all our kids are involved. They all help. We all, you know, this is a, a inspired family operation here. But I mean, they just came back and said, did you read those comments? Just I'm speechless. And it rarely happens. But I was speechless reading the comments, how beautiful, how heartfelt, how, you know, truthful and how you, you know, you were able to express what you felt listening to that song nothing could mean more to me. You know, you go and, and if this turns number one tomorrow and becomes the biggest hit, commercially speaking, it wouldn't mean as much to me as having felt and read your words, your comments, what it did to you. Because my intention with this song, it's called Faith in Me, but my intention with this song was really for it to be our song, our story, because I believe it's our story. So many of you share this story that I sing about in this song, The Journey. And I, I was just absolutely stunned. And I want to thank you again. Um, I still keep reading through the comments. My heart is full. And I, you know, I, we're just so blessed. Christine and I, our whole family, we're just so blessed to have such a wonderful tribe, such a wonderful extended family. Thank you. So much love to you all. Many blessings. We love you very, very much. And we'll be back with you again very soon. You've been listening to Radio 5G, a production of CosmicReality.com. Thank you for listening.